seriously popular. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Now, the trial of the NHS nurse Lucy Letby is continuing at Manchester Crown Court. She wept as she told the court that she was devastated at being accused of murdering seven young babies and the attempted murder of ten others. Asked by her defence lawyer if she'd done anything wrong, no, she replied. She told the jury that she'd only ever done her best to care for the babies. This is a podcast about one of the most anticipated criminal trials for years. It involves the most shocking of allegations the alleged murders and attempted murders of tiny, premature babies at the hands of a neonatal nurse whose very job it was to look after them. Lucy Letby is on trial at Manchester Crown Court, accused of killing seven newborns and injuring ten more at the Countess of Chester Hospital in Cheshire. The jury has now been sitting for nine months. The prosecution and defence have finished outlining their cases and the jury will shortly be asked to decide whether Lucy Letby is guilty or not guilty of the 22 charges that she faces. I'm Liz Hull, Northern Correspondent for The Mail. I will be in court to report on the case as it develops. And I'm Caroline Cheatham, a broadcast journalist. Every week, we'll examine what's happened and bring you the details behind the headlines. This is the trial of Lucy Letby. So the jury was sent out a fortnight ago to consider their verdicts. They spent five days deliberating, but last week they were unable to continue those deliberations because one of them was absent. They all have to be together when deliberating. They can't talk about the case when any of them are missing. But they came back to court today to continue to decide whether Lucy Letby is guilty or innocent of the charges she faces. So all we can do is to carry on waiting. Welcome to episode 47, Open Justice. So Liz, the evidence in this trial has been outlined, the defence and prosecution have had their say, and so has the judge. So now it's up to the jury to come to their decisions. Yes, and as we explained last week, the police officers, the families of all the babies involved, The barristers and the journalists are all in or near to the court, just waiting for that moment when we're told that the jury have made up their minds. The judge, Mr Justice Goss, has told the jury they should take their time and not to feel any pressure. But we don't get much warning when they have reached their verdict, so we've got to be close by to the court at all times. 
Every week we've explained that we won't do anything in this podcast to put the integrity of a fair trial at risk. And that's even more important now the jury are out deliberating. So again, like last week, this week's podcast is a bit different because we can't discuss what's happened at court or recap on the evidence we've already heard. So instead, we've got another fantastic interview for you. This time it's with Mike Dodd. He's a journalist and lawyer who spent more than 50 years in our industry before retiring a couple of years ago. He began his career as a reporter, but later trained as a lawyer and a barrister. He spent a large part of his career as the legal advisor for the Press Association. That's the main reporting agency in the UK. He advised journalists on how to report on court cases and how to challenge reporting restrictions when they're incorrectly imposed by judges. So we're really pleased that Mike Dodd has joined us formally, the legal eagle from PA, the Press Association. Hello, nice to talk to you, Mike. Hi, Mike. Hello, good morning. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your career and what you did as the the day job? Yes, I started off in 1968 on a paper called the Surrey Herald, which now has been subsumed into the Surrey Advertiser Group and, of course, has disappeared from the newspaper stands, like most papers. I did six or seven years there, then moved to PA for a short time. And then I went and worked out in South Africa on a newspaper called The World, where I was a sub-editor. I left South Africa just before The World was closed, reopened shortly after, as it's now called the Suwaitan. Came back, did a little bit of freelancing, and then rejoined PA on the sums desk on the all-night shift, and then moved after a while to the evening shift, and then after a while moved to the day shift. And in the meantime did a law degree and then decided that a law degree was very nice. So I went off, studied for the bar and qualified as a barrister. Although oh, wow. I've never been, I've never actually practiced as a barrister, but I, but I also did a master's degree in law as well. Gosh. So journalist turned lawyer. Or lawyer turned journalist. I always wanted to be a lawyer. I didn't have Latin. I never managed to pass Latin O-level. <laughs> right. So there you, there you, there you have it. Mm. And then after a 52-year career banging various typewriters and keyboards, of course, uh, I finally decided that enough was enough and at the age of 72, it was time to creep away into the darkness. But I think like Caroline and I, who obviously think court reporting is really important and our podcast has kind of taken a different tack on court reporting, I think you agree, don't you, that court reporting is really important for journalists and journalism? I think it's important for journalists and journalism because it's important for the public. If the public don't know what's going on in the courts, they've got Mm. no idea whether justice is actually being administered or whether the system's working. Well, it's behind closed doors, isn't it, if we're not there? Yes, it is. And this, this is the trouble. There are a lot of people out there who would love for justice to be behind closed doors, especially if they're the ones who are going to be subject to it. The problem is that Liz has been dedicated to this trial for nine, ten months, not really doing very much else for the Daily Mail, apart from writing copy for the paper and hosting, writing, producing this podcast. I'm the same. People either can't or won't pay for that, will they? It is very expensive to keep a a fully qualified journalist sitting in court. One, because any reasonable publication will be paying their journalists a reasonably good sum of money because of the amount of responsibility any journalist bears, the Mm. number of decisions they have to make on the hoof while sitting there in court or writing their copy up without reference to senior editors is quite astonishing. And the problem is that you may sit there in court for a total of six or seven hours 
during a day. And of course, you get your lunch break in the middle and you may only get 30, 40, 50 words out of it because yeah. it's been a very long, complex hearing. And then the judge says, oh, no, you can't report any of that till the end of the trial. In which case, you know, you've effectively, that money hasn't been wasted, but you're not going to get an immediate return on it. The difficulty with journalism is that publications these days need an almost immediate return on what they publish. One of the suggestions a lawyer put to me actually last week, funnily enough, was, you know, should this be something the MOJ, the Ministry of Justice, actually invest in, in order that the court system is more transparent? Court reporters paid for by the Ministry of Justice. No. If they're paid for by the Ministry of Justice, you will eventually get somebody at the Ministry of Justice who says, I want it written that way. Yes. I want you to report this. You're I don't right. want you to report that. Mm, yeah. Under no circumstances do we want any form of state control over, over court reporting. At the moment, it's really hard to get freelancers to make a living out of court reporting. So that industry has all well, but died. It, it, it is because, I mean, for example, the, the big problem and the big problem that we haven't managed to work an answer to really is the advent of the internet. The trouble is that at the times when newspapers are doing very well, journalists could do quite well out of freelance court reporting because you might have a case which would be of interest to three or four newspapers and yeah. they'd all pay you to send your report to them. Now, it appears on Google, people just cut and paste it and rip it off. They yeah. just think it's on the internet, it's free, I'll use that. Thank you very much indeed. I mean, there used to be specialist court reporting agencies. I think there's yeah. only one left and that's in central London. I think all the rest of them. But, you know, there are there are local news agencies which do court reports, but there are no longer any specialist court reporting agencies or journalists who just do nothing but sit in court and report in the hope that they're going to make freelance income. Out. I should shout out for Linda Ruffley at Liverpool Crown Court at this stage because she is she's still there waving the flag for freelancers. She is. Well, thumbs up. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, wish, I wish her the very best of luck. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Give us some examples, Mike, of cases where you've successfully perhaps advised a journalist to stand up and, you know, take on a judge that was happy to put a restriction on where it wasn't appropriate. There was a case... Up in Cambridge, some, it was a couple of years ago now. In fact, the judge put the restriction on and we had to go to the Court of Appeal to get it lifted because the judge refused to change his mind. But that was a rape case in which a young man had raped, had raped a woman and the defence stood up and suggested that it was quite possible that in naming the defendant, the media would automatically name the victim. And the judge agreed with this and said, well, in order to avoid this, of course, what I'll do is I'll make an anonymity order to say you can't name the rapist. You can't name the young man who'd actually admitted rape. Anyway, we went off to the Court of Appeal and the Court of Appeal agreed with the point I put, which was that there is a penalty for name for publishing material which, which identifies the victim of a rape or any other sexual offence. 
And we pay that penalty. We know it's a criminal offence to do it because you're going to end up in a criminal court being prosecuted. We do our utmost to avoid the penalty and it's up to us to decide what we publish. You should always go for naming somebody in court rather rather than anonymity whenever you possibly can. But you're right, Mike. The responsibility ought to be with the journalist and the editor. Yes, it is. And uh, the, I mean, the court of appeal. The court of appeal said that. I've only ever stood up in front of a judge once and tried to yeah, argue I've done it a couple of times. my case, and it's flipping frightening. When you were advising your journalists at PA, Mike, and they're really seasoned, experienced court reporters, were they pretty good at doing that, or did you have to sort of coach them through it? I have a colleague, Brian Farmer, who's quite he's quite willing to stand up in front of the Lord Chief Justice and make a point. He's constantly standing up in front of judges, yeah. judges mm. in the high courts. We have lots of them who are who are quite willing to stand up in court and make the point. We do have, you know, there were a couple of others, and I and I don't blame them because I've stood up in court. I can tell you, you're right. It is a terrifying mm. experience. You have to remember something. A lot of criminal barristers don't actually know an awful lot about media law. And, and, and the know, tendency to err on the side of caution and, and go for a restriction is infuriating at times. Yeah, well, I mean, this happens with judges as well. Although I have to say, I have, I have some sympathy with judges. I'm glad I'm not having to sit there because it's the judge's responsibility to make sure that the defendant gets a fair trial. And media issues are something of a side issue. I'm sure that over your career, you saw an attempt to impose more and more restrictions on reporting. It's going on all the time. There is now an attempt to bring back anonymity for men accused of sexual offences. I'm afraid I just can't see that. We should never have anonymity for people accused of offences. One of the big arguments for any of of this, of course, is is privacy. And I I know you wrote a sort of piece in Press Gazette before you retired about exactly this and just how far the protections around the privacy law have gone in your time? Well, one of the things, for example, with especially with sexual offences, one of the things is that once you start investigating somebody for sexual offences and it becomes known that that individual is being investigated, then it's quite possible that other, other individuals, when they, if they believe that they're actually finally going to be taken seriously, they might also come out of the woodwork and announce, yes, this person did something to me. Mm. Yeah, other victims come forward. You only have to look at the Jimmy Savile case. Once it emerged, you know, some of the things he'd been up to, suddenly people were popping up all Mm. over the place saying, yes, me too, me too, me too. The police don't have a chance to do any of this if they're investigating somebody and they've got to keep it quiet. I think it's necessary in the public interest to ensure that justice is done and that crimes are properly investigated. And have you ever taken on some um, some very eminent judges, Mike? Have you, can you give us some examples of that, where you've kind of got them to either back down or take on your point of view and not put restrictions on? I can remember a county court judge, or a crown court judge, rather, who, who once imposed a reporting restriction because he didn't like the intro written by a journalist, another journalist in court. And the judge then imposed a reporting restriction saying we couldn't report any of the evidence that was given until the prosecution evidence was completed. Because they didn't like the intro. <laughs> yes, because he didn't like the intro, and then he didn't. He believed he also believed that the reporting might influence witnesses. I wrote a, a representation. I sent it in, and the judge rejected it. So I then, that afternoon, sent in an application to the Court of Appeal. And the following morning, the judge walked into court and lifted the restriction. 
But then not merely did he lift the restriction, but he then said, I'm asking all the journalists in court not to report the evidence anyway until the prosecution case, for exactly the same reason he gave for imposing the restriction in the, in the first place. And when the reporter rang up and told me that, I said, just file your copy and file it now. What the judge is saying is he didn't have the power to make the order, but he still wants you to obey it. Well, the answer is no. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah. I've never heard them do that before. No. At the moment, the jury in this trial of Lucy Letby are out deliberating on their verdict, which is why we are quite restricted on the podcast on what we can now say. And I wonder whether just from a legal perspective, you can just walk our listeners through why we're having to do that and what the dangers are. The big danger with reporting any criminal case is that you're going to commit contempt of court. Mm. Now, contempt of court sounds as if you're sitting in in the court with something rude written on your T-shirt. And in fact, somebody did want to get jailed for doing precisely that. But it doesn't actually mean that you're in contempt of the court itself. What it actually means is that you've done something, said something or published something, which causes a serious risk that the administration of justice will in some way or another be derailed. And of course, once the jury has heard all the evidence, the one thing nobody can should do is try and do or say or put in front of the, any, any juror anything which might possibly taint their view of what they've seen and heard in court. Net result is that once the jury is sent out to consider, all reporting effectively stops. It's up to them to use what they've seen and heard in court to reach whatever verdict they choose to reach. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much. That's all right. You're more than welcome. That's it for episode 47. And as we said, Liz and I will continue to be at court waiting for the jury to reach their verdict. We've no idea how long that'll take, but we'll bring you their decision as soon as it happens. You can also follow me on Twitter at Liz Hull. You can give us a rating and you can share the podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at Lucy Letby Trial or follow me at Radio Caroline or send us an email at the trial of Lucy Letby at gmail.com. See you then. Our hit series, Everything I Know About Me, is back for a brand new season. And this time, our guest needs no introduction. Oh, God, you find me, Darren! But here's one anyway. Hi, I'm Gemma Collins, and this is everything I know about me. If you think you know all about Gemma Collins, think again. Because this is the GC as you've never heard her before. It's been exhausting. Unashamed. And I was really heartbroken because I was pregnant and he was having an affair. Unfiltered. I have had an operation as well years ago. I have a designer vagina. Yeah, baby. I don't have camel toe. Unbelievable. And then they advised me, you need to have a termination. And, uh, yeah... I remember that being really stressful. Everything I know about me with Gemma Collins is out this Thursday wherever you get your podcasts.